Good morning. We are still talking about this idea of Zokev Kefufim, and we're at the point where we want to move it closer to something we can use, right? That, and in Merit Hashem, the goal is that when we say this bracha, Baruch HaToh Hashem, Elokeinu Melech HaOlam, Zokev Kefufim, who raises up those who are crushed or bent over, that the words themselves will have a deeper meaning. So in this case, of course, the words themselves help us out in a big way by actually when you look at the words, zokef, straightening up, is made of straightened up letters, and kfufim is made of curved over letters. So it's exceedingly non-difficult. It, it requ- still requires attention, but it's a straightforward path to making the, the words remind you of the concept. But and we spent last week, we um, worked on fleshing out the concept, summed up, let's say, in the idea, which we only got halfway through, but we got through this stage of saying that the Nahash, the snake in Gan Eden, was brought down low. The sort of the ultimate kafuf, the ultimate bent down by losing its legs completely from a state of upright posture, and that man does remain with an upright posture, and as Rav Hirsch says, such is the natural state of man, a state of blessing, a state of resembling God. The return to blessing and to nearness to God, to the natural condition out of degeneration, is the object and goal of the history of the world. And we kind of indicated it's the object and goal of the history of any one of us. Within our own history, within our own lives, we fall down, and to be able to pick ourselves up and return to our natural state of being close to God, both in spiritual proximity and in resemblance, that as much as possible to come close to God. So in previous topics, um, particularly in Malbisharumim, we talked about emulating God through kindness and how why that's an emulation. I'm not going to repeat that, but I mention it so that if you want to go back and find it, you know where to find it. Um, but we are going to go forward here and talk about how these ideas come together and implement, and we see them. So, something I try not to do is jump from bracha to bracha, <laughs> but I think that if you do Davin Shmon Esrei regularly, or, <coughs> or even occasionally, you'll be interested to know something about bowing down in Shmon Esrei, because there's a perfect example of being bent down and being stood up. Right, so there are two kinds of <laughs> bows. Two kinds of bows. There's usually tissues in here. In Shmona Esrei, there are four times that we bow in Shmona Esrei. I'm not counting Osa Shalom at the end. It's not really in the body of Shmona Esrei. Okay, three of them are a classic bow. Meaning, when you say the word Baruch, you bend your knees. <clears throat> and by the way, a knee in Hebrew is a Berach. Okay, so when you say the word Baruch, you bend your knees. Easy way to remember that. When you say the word Atah, God, knowing God is directly before you, which is a, an awesome feeling, we bow down. We bend from the waist, right? So our knees are bent, and now our waist goes down, and our head goes down. And when we say Hashem, we straighten back up again. There is another kind of bow, which is the bow of Modim. Now, I don't know if you know, but the bow at Modim is different from the other three bows in Shemona Esrei. 
the bow at modim, we don't bend our knees. When you say the word modim, I'll open up a sitter here. Again, I'm not a rabbi. I'm telling you the halacha as I understand it. But if you have questions, first of all, definitely feel free to ask me, and I'll ask a rab, or ask a rab. <coughs> but let me know if you think you misunderstood. I had a very traumatic experience in the last two weeks about having a shear misunderstood exactly in the opposite. Oh and it happened to be I had read it from inside, so I don't feel completely culpable. <laughs> I had read it from inside the Sefer, which said the opposite. So, And how many people misunderstood it? One. Okay. But that's enough. I was really very traumatized. <laughs> it's a very, it's very difficult to, to feel. It. They didn't talk to me about oh, it. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I worked it out, and uh, hopefully we've had a chance to straighten it out. I hope. Since you don't want to be responsible for traumatizing other people. I wasn't the only one who was traumatized by thinking that something was the opposite of what it was. Okay, modim. Modim anach nulach. The word modim is a little tricky. We may, we may talk about it a bit, even though it isn't Hanukkah time or modim time. We acknowledge to you, Hashem, sha'ata. By the way, the word sha'ata, I'm just pointing this out. This is really tangential. It's got a kamatz under the shin. Not a segel. It's not she'ata, it's sha'ata. Mm-hmm. you got to look real close at your sitter to notice that. And since a segel and a kamatz actually form the same, they fill the same space, but a, segel, a kamatz is like a filled-in segel. So since most people are looking for the word she'ata, that's what they see, but it's sha'ata. I have found a couple of those. Um, first one was pointed out to be by a friend. It's in benching. So don't tell me you've oh never said this in no delicha. <laughs> Yeah, talk, okay, we're really going to go on a tangent, but this is important stuff and exciting stuff. Because it's exciting. You know what? It sounds Very. funny, but you look forward to the word modim when you have insider knowledge about the word sha'ata. And you know that like other people haven't caught on to okay, this. No delecha. Look at the end of the paragraph. The end of the paragraph of no delecha. Thank you, God. By the way, you notice that it's no de. It's also a no delecha, like modim anachnulah. The al achilas mazon. Thank you also for the ability to eat food, shaatazan, which you nur- with which you nourish us. You see it? it I mean, and where and is you it's sing, a shah at the end of no Wait, and then when you sing it, the kids usually say shaatazan because their teachers didn't know either, and you didn't know when you taught them to bench. I, I learned that. <laughs> I didn't learn. I didn't understand the difference. Like I didn't understand. Right. No. The it's. A, it's. A, I don't. I don't know that there. The I don't know what the hashkafa is behind it. There. I'm sure there is a very As deep one. As opposed to bending the knee versus just. No. That's okay. Back. That's a different thing. No. 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 Here we're just talking about. That now we've gone on a tangent on a tangent. The tangent <laughs> on the tangent is that there are a few places. I think I have found three so far, where the word is sha'ata with a kamatz. I'm eager if anyone wants to add to my collection of this instead of she'ata. The first one is in modim, which we just came across because modim is our original tangent. Mo- it's not such a tangent, you'll see. Modim anachnu lach sha'ata hu Hashem elokeinu velokei avoseinu le'olam v'en. No delecha, at the end of no de in benching. Ve'al achilas mazon sha'atazan. There's another case that I noticed between Shema and Shmona Esrei. Um... And I'm not even finding it quickly. After, I'm sorry, after Shema or before? Between Shema and Shema Esther. Well, you'll have to find it and tell me. Because I'm not finding it quickly. Here it is. 
It's in the paragraph between Shman Shmona Esrei Al Harishonim ve Al Haachronim. Davar Tov ve Kayom Leolam Vaed Emes ve Emuna Chok ve Lo Yaavor Emes Sha Ata Hu Hashem Elokeinu ve Elokei Avoseinu Malkeinu Melech Avoseinu. Okay, so that's three that I've found. And like I said, if anyone finds another one, I'm always eager to add to my collection. Total side point, yeah. but it makes you look forward to them. It, it, by the way, it's very good for your concentration in Nodalacha, if you're watching out for the Shata. <laughs> it, keeps you, it keeps you focused on the words. Is there you a get difference in the translation? No. There is not a difference in the translation. I have not looked into this enough. My assumption is that it's a grammatical point, that the reason that the, instead of a segel, it's a commas is grammatical. Um, you, I know you can have the opposite with the word ha, the, the prefix ha. Um, if it comes before another ha, it'll become a he. Heharim, the mountains, mm-hmm. not haharim, heharim. So I assume it's some type of grammatical exception that triggers the change from she'ata to sha'ata, but I don't know what it is. Okay, back to modim. Modim anachnulach, sha'ata, hu Hashem elokeinu velokeinu velokeinu leolam va'et. We bow down at the word modim, and we stay down until we say Hashem. So you bow, modim anachnulach sha'atahu. Without bending the knees. It's not bending the knees. And I'm going to talk about it in more detail. Yeah, I'm going to describe it in a little more detail. Hashem elokeinu velokeinu velokeinu leolam va'ed. So in that sense, it's similar to the other brachos and the other places we bow, where at the word Hashem, we straighten up. We say God's name straightened, and we say the parts before bent. Okay, but here's, I'm going to read to you, this is the tefillas kolpeh, even just a, the sitter. Um, I don't see a tefillas kolpeh here, but just the uh, typical description in a sitter is quoting from the halacha. Sheomer modim, when you say modim, korea rosho, he should bend his head, meaning a person bends his head, vigufo, and body, ke agmon, like a reed. So now imagine that there's some sort of soft, like soft grass or reed, right? And the wind is blowing. How does it bend, right? It curves over. Bivasachas, all in one, right? As opposed to first bowing with the knees like we do with the other bows, where at the word baruch we bend our knees, at all we bend down, until until all the vertebra of the spine separate. And when he straightens up, he should come up calmly, like not in a big rush. Head first. Okay, which means when you bow for modim, which is from the waist, it doesn't include the knees. You bend forward with your head and your spine until you feel that your spine is actually here, like separating. I don't know if you could imagine like a Roman arch where they put in the, you have the the shaped um, stones that are like wider at the top and then they get narrower and this way they all fit together. Now imagine that you pulled that down a little bit. They would all separate a little bit from each other. That's what you got to do for Modin. Okay, I know we're not. Why are we here yet? Sorry? So that I just took actually right out of the Siddur Kolpe, standard Siddur. I have a few other sources over here. I mean, I saw it in the Aruch HaSholchan. I saw it in the Shulchan. This is the the basic halacha. This is how you bow for modim. It's good to dive in a place where you feel really comfortable because um, 
it's it's not something that make it's not something you're going to feel perfectly comfortable doing let's say in the coffee bean <laughs> it's not just a knot of the head you actually have to bend down far enough that you feel that your spine has curved and all of that I'm saying try this at home you know they tell you don't try this at home try this at home try this at home and by the way it will it's transformative in terms of the experience of Moses and at shoal it's a bit of a problem sometimes it shouldn't be a problem in a shoal no, no, no. Because space-wise? No, no, I understand. I didn't think you meant you emotionally. Yeah. <laughs> no, so you have to have enough room when you're davening. Yeah. You have to have enough room when you're davening. There's a bar mitzvah. Well, you could kind of do it like... Right. You do want cheers. your head down. And in order for your spine to do that, your head has to get pretty low. Okay? But it's also just even the being in touch, the experience of feeling in touch with how far have I bent. Do I feel that separation in the spine? Um by itself has an influence on, you know, like we don't, we don't get down on the floor and bow regularly all year, other than Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. So it's, you know, bowing is actually a pretty profound experience of subjugating ourselves to Hashem and, and saying, like, I know, I know my place in relation to you. Okay, now, let's just start with this. So let's say we know this halacha. Now I'm going to read to you. This is Rav Ruvain Leichter's translations in his Sefer on Tefillah. First is a Gemara. The Gemara says in Bavakama Tezayin, a person's spine turns into a snake seven years after his death. To whom do these words apply? One who did not bow during Modim. Yeah, it starts to get a little bit stranger than just, here's how you bow at Mozim. Okay. So when a person... Now, there's, there's more. Like, don't... Nobody leave now. <laughs> okay. He is a Talmud of Revolvi. I just discovered him myself. <laughs> but he's actually well-known in the world of Torah and Musser. Um, and he has these two small... I, I, the way I found out about his books is through an article in Mishpacha. Mishpacha interviewed him around Yom Kippur time, and it was such an unbelievable article. I'm probably still carrying it around with me. Unbelievable article. A completely different way, as far as I could tell, of thinking about tshuva, and it really resonated, and really I found to be very helpful practically as well. And he has a very small book called Tshuva, which I haven't managed to finish yet, and I'm a fast reader. This is read little pieces and think about it and integrate it and maybe read it again and maybe go back and I'm looking forward to doing another cycle on the book. It's really profound, very deep book. And a second book called Tefillah. One on Shuva, one on Tefillah. So it's like pretty awesome stuff. Okay. Uh, here he quotes the Tolas Yaakov written by Rabbi Meir Ibn Gabai who is apparently a 16th century Kabbalist and I take his word for that. Man, but this, this uh, statement although I hadn't seen that inside, but I've heard this before. Man has one bone from which he came into being. It is called the luz. You've probably also heard of the luz, right? What's the luz is like this very bottom bone in the spine. That's right. When he dies, this bone is not lost or dissolved. It lasts forever. At the time of Tchiyas HaMesim, Hashem brings down dew from above onto this bone. And the verse says, dress me in skin and flesh, cover me in bone and sinews. That's Eov. For this bone remains, even after death, for the rebuilding of man, so that there is a permanent base upon which blessing can descend. 
When one does not bend during modim and demonstrate his faith in his creator, the bone that is the root of man transforms into a different cursed creation, the snake. That's the reference to the Gemara. Okay. Now, I'm not going to address here, like, what does this mean, like, in a spooky sense? That's, this is, like, way out. I wouldn't even bring it up if not for the fact that there's practical, emotional, avoda-based work we can do out of this, okay? Out of the idea that, and we, ha- we still, we're missing too many pieces still to even work with it, but piece one is at modim, we bow down in a way that we feel our spine, the vertebra, the bones of the spine, all kind of draw away from each other. That's number one. Um, number two, piece number two is that the very base of the spine from which it all resurrects, the spine and everything else. Um, this is the loose bone, and it doesn't, it doesn't degenerate after death, in particular if we have bowed at modim. Meaning, we understand that it literally means bowing at modim, but we also understand that it means what we're supposed to be doing when we're bowing at modim, right? It's not just the physical act of the bowing that's the point over here but that somehow what we do when we bow at modim forms the core upon which our resurrection as people happens, okay? That we can come back and our whole body, our physical body then is relying on something about modim. Because what does it mean to be resurrected? Our soul lives on forever. The soul lives on forever. Okay, so what does it mean to be resurrected? Like, what a question, right? I don't know. But I do know that Trias HaMesim is... Hashem's reuniting of the soul and body who are the partners in serving him. The body gets its reward as well. The soul, of course, lives on forever. But even the body will not be neglected. But that depends on something that happens in modim. Okay, in order for the body to be the full partner to the soul, we need a modim. Let's put it that way. You hear how I got there, right? Mm-hmm. Not, I did, there's no big leaps here, other than turning my back completely on the Kabbalistic and esoteric, because good grief, you know, I don't know anything about that. But I can hear that what the Gemara is telling me, and I wouldn't say this on my own, it's not just me interpreting, okay? I, I'm telling you this from other sources. What I can hear is that my body, in order to zokev kefufim, to, to stand tall, requires something that happens in Modim. Okay. So, I'm going to start with a couple little snippets from Rav Leichter. It's a loose bone. I thought I was told it was in the base of the neck. I've heard that, but as far as I can tell, most most sources I've seen say it's like, at the base of the spine. Is that like the coccyx? Yeah. So, as far as I can tell. I'm so sorry. So you, but I've, I have heard what you've said, but I've never seen it inside. I, I need to repeat, because it's hard to write all that down. Um... So you need modim to... Somehow, we need modim to keep our body and soul as partners in the long term. There's a key role here at the, in, at the intersection of body and soul. And what's the connection between Zokev Kefufim and modim? Just We're going to get to it. Okay. Right. So far, the only connection was that the word Zakifa, like Zokev, is used for straightening up out of modim. So, so that, that's cool. But you could hardly make a whole drasha out of what it says, like, in the instructions in the sitter. Okay. I mean, you could make a whole drasha out of it, but it might not be intellectually honest, if that were your only basis. Um, 
That's what Julie said, and I, I've seen that. I haven't seen it inside. I've also heard that. But I, what I have seen inside is that it's at the bottom of the spine. It could be at the top. I, I don't know. I don't, it could be there's two opinions, and I don't know which is which. It doesn't, it doesn't change what we're going to learn, but I don't know. I have heard that also. Oh, that's cool. She always teaches us all kinds of cool wow. stuff. It's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> what that's what really neat. Is that? mm. it's they, they do that, but it's like from the Havdalah. Um, Take from the Havdalah. And put the wine at the base of the neck. That's really cool. Wow. That's so cool. That's awesome. That's better than what we do. <laughs> put it deeper. in your pocket. Put the <laughs> candle in it. <laughs> your pocket. We're like um, so litvish. Now we're gonna go down lower. <laughs> no, we never heard a custom like that. We don't have to make up any customs. This, by the way, I would say a custom like that is probably a good source, even if I don't see inside. So that would be an interesting source. Okay. So, like so statement one here. Our gratitude. What happens when we bow at modim? The word modim, remember, means acknowledgement. Whether we're gonna discuss it more, I'm pretty sure we talked about the word modim at Hanukkah time. So. Our gratitude should overtake our physicality. Now, I'm just even going to stop in the middle of the sentence. Like I said, I have trouble reading Rav Leichter real fast. Gratitude. Our gratitude, our, our modim, our modim, our gratitude, should overtake our physicality. That encapsulates the word modim. Our gratitude, right? If you take the word modim and what you're doing at the time that you say the word modim, bowing down like this, our gratitude should overtake our physicality to the point where the body itself is subjected to Hashem. Well, one thing is by saying modim and bowing down to that point. Okay. <coughs> the, the bracha of modim, gratitude, we are even thanking for having gratitude. Meaning... It's not just that we're saying thank you, right? Because we even say, let's say in the Modim Zerabanan, Al Shanachnu Modimlach. Thank you for that, that we can thank you. We're, we're grateful that we could be grateful because gratitude itself is a fundamental need. The ability to be grateful is a fundamental need. And so the bowing down that is uniquely related to gratitude goes in modim. It's a different bow from any other place that we bow. It has its own like little meaning. Okay. And the particular aspect which Rav Leichter brings and why it's at the end of Shemona Esrei is we are grateful. Let me go back. What does it mean to be grateful? If this is a bracha about gratitude, it, it expresses gratitude, but it's also about gratitude. What does it mean to be grateful? So hoda'a, modim, that word, has two meanings. There's modim she, or sha, right? That's acknowledging. It's admitting. It's saying, you know more than I do. Okay, vidui is saying I did the wrong thing. I admit that I was wrong and you were right. That's what vidui is, is a confession, right? 
Hoda'a is acknowledgement. I acknowledge that what you said was right, or did was right. So, we acknowledge. And then we have, for example, in this paragraph, we thank you. Rav Hutner says, you can tell that which kind of modeh it is, is if it's modeh she or modeh le. Okay, if it's followed by a shin, it's acknowledgement or admission. And if it's followed by a lamid, it's gratitude, it's, it's thanks. In either case, whether you're being great, the reason these ideas are tied together is because when you are grateful or when you are admitting something, you are saying that the other one has more power than you do. If you're grateful, you know some people who have trouble saying thank you? Kids. <laughs> because it means I didn't do it myself, you did it. It, it's, an, it's an admission of the other person's strength or power or giving or, right, importance. What was the second one again? That's the, the second one. Is That's the, with the Lamed. That's with the Lamed. So like, Nodel Lecha is gratitude, and Modim She is acknowledgement. They're, they're variations on the same idea, but right. they translate a little differently, and sometimes that'll come out to something. The particular aspect here, which comes at the culmination of Shrona Esrei, which we're not up to talking about yet, is that when I acknowledge Hashem as greater than me, I'm also able to say that whatever you say, God, whatever is your will, is better than my will, is more correct, is more far-seeing, is more goodness, is more kindness, is more wise. So when I physically bend down, when I say modim, I am saying that my will is whatever is your will. I'm grateful to you, and I acknowledge what you do to you. Because whatever I think my will is, it, what, it, what I want it to be is whatever is your will. Because my own will on its own <laughs> would be in big trouble. Okay, so this bringing together of trying to, trying to subsume my will to God's will is the expression of modem, but it is also a, a, near, a penultimate culmination. Okay, it's not quite the culmination of Shemona Esrei, but it's something that you get to through a process of Shemona Esrei. It's not like you just jump into modem. Okay. I want to just bring a couple more points so that we can start start seeing how we bring it together. The Nachash, the snake. I'm going to bring an approach to the snake now. This is from Rav Moshe Eisman in Baltimore. He, you know, there's so many ways of understanding what happened in Gan Eden, but this angle is a helpful one, especially for this conversation. What is, what is the pressure of the snake on mankind? Funny how we keep coming back to this, right? Okay. Okay. The snake says to the woman, sorry, 
The woman says to the snake, God said, don't eat from the tree. Don't even touch it, lest you die. And the snake said to the woman, you won't die. Because God knows that when you eat from this tree, your eyes will open and you'll be just like a god, understanding the difference between good and bad. Vateri ha'isha, and the woman saw, kitov ha'etz l'ma'achal. So he's convinced her of something, but what? What she saw was the tree was good to eat. And it was a temptation or a lure to the eyes. Hang on. You can't see that food is yummy to eat. You can taste that food is yummy. There's something, there's some kind of, what, what is the conversation? Like, understanding. The theory is more of like an understanding. It can, so it can be an internal understanding, right? Right, it could be like an insight, which is what he was trying to tell her she would have if she ate from it, right? This, here's, the, here's the angle he takes. He says the snake was the king of beasts. The snake is representing all animal kind, animalness way of being an animal. That later he gets replaced, you know, he gets down and now he's separate from all the other animals. And he's saying, you're not gonna die. You're gonna know the difference between good and bad. How do you know the difference between what's good for you and what's bad for you? Let me tell you, if you look at something and it just seems good and feels good, it's good for you. If you look at something and it turns you off, that's bad for you. Now, I may sound like I'm paraphrasing like every movie and love song <laughs> that's out there. That's because I am. That's what the snake told her. Now, the snake was telling her the animal experience. How does an animal know what's good for it or what's bad for it to eat? It just kind of, if it seems good, it's good. If it isn't good, it isn't good. Now, if it seems like it's good for it, it probably is. Just like rule of thumb. Is it always? Can it be fooled? Like, yeah, I guess. Right? But basically speaking, animals are pre-programmed. If it looks good, if it smells good, if it seems good, it's good. If it seems bad, it's bad. And so she looks at the food and, you know, it looks good. This is an approach. It's an interesting and helpful approach because the snake in saying, if it looks good, it is good. If it looks bad, it is bad. He is rebelling against God, right? He's like, oh no, God just is telling you that because like, what kind of statement is that? That's the statement of somebody who says, that the way you know what's good is just by how it looks and feels, as opposed to knowing that there's such a thing as right and wrong that is above and beyond what your body is telling you. Now, whether the snake was able to relate to that or not, okay, his approach would say not, but Adam and Chava were supposed to relate to God, not only through their bodies, People are supposed to relate to God by making choices. Choices made based on God. That Hashem says, right, that's our level one. 
Hashem says this is his will, right or wrong. And then you get to the level to, oh, you weren't here. So I'll give you a sheet. Then you come down a level and say, therefore, I make a choice. And that is working in the spiritual world. That is the world of the intellect serving the spiritual. Sorry. No, but Shelly wasn't here. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, no. No, I know you felt like Okay. And the snake is coming from the bottom. But the, okay. the Nachash is the animal. Yes, the animal. that's right. So that's why I said maybe the Nachash was only telling the truth as it knew it. But it seems that it's more than that because this, the snake was cleverer, the Pasuk says, than other animals. So it had some kind of intellect going. But it was, it was no, the body. That's how you know. What's good and bad? It all goes on your body by what you feel, what you sense, what you taste. He's pushing her down into that level below the horizontal black line, right? It's the feeling and it's the physical. And we are supposed to be serving God with our mind, with our free will, based on what's above that, which is God's will, as best as we understand it. Okay. So when, when, the, so. Uh, when the um, Gemara says that we, our lose zone becomes... It, when the Gemara says we have a choice, you can say modim, you can bow at modim, or you can, be like lower you can turn into a snake. snake. There's two ways so your spine deep. can go. That spine which runs down the core of your body and is what you stand up with has two directions it can go. It can turn into a snake, meaning down on its belly, everything down at that low level, or it can be standing up and again. You can rise again. And it's really you can stand up again. You can stand up again out of your laying down in the ground. You can stand up and rise again with your head up over the rest of your body. That's the choice. I know this is, this is not a great question, but... If a person hasn't really done shuba and they've been like a rasha, but they're great at doing modim and bending over. It will like, be to their credit. The Vilna Gon, somebody came to the Vilna Gon once. Very good question. And I, just, I, always <laughs> have, a, I have a real problem with Say that. the Vilna Gon, okay. Do you, know, do you know anyone that does that? That's such a rasha. Not that I, I would know such a no. Right, Baruch Hashem. I don't know. No, okay. I so, I'm just saying that, you know, they say that people have done something, mm -hmm. you know, they've been a whatever, their whole life, and then at, on their deathbed... So the Vilna was talking to somebody who had completely thrown off Torah and mitzvahs, and this person was about to eat something, and the gra, so they say, the gra said, I heard, I heard this from Rabbi Reisman, I don't know where he heard this story from, because I just don't know. Um, the gra said to him, make a bracha. The person said, I don't keep Shabbos. I don't only eat kosher food. Do you think it really matters if I make a bracha? And the gra said, yes. What you do matters. What you do matters. So number one is what you do matters. There's no, we don't say about anybody at any level. And by the way, we don't say about ourselves, I have fallen so far that it doesn't matter anymore. That is the voice of depression and death. That is the voice of Yetzirah in the literal sense, according to the way Rav Schwab understands the Yetzirah. It is the voice within us that pushes us towards self-destruction. The idea that no matter how far I've fallen, right, I have to know that it still matters. I might take, I might be capable 
of doing something so tiny that anyone would laugh if they heard that that was my action of choice. At least I'll make a bracha. At least I'll say amen. At least I'll force my teeth into a smile for one second while I'm screaming. Whatever. But you know what? It's those little things that make a difference because those are the moments where we are using our free will. So that's number one. Number two is, the truth is, based on what we're understanding about modem, it's not possible to be like this huge Russia and also be saying modem like in a real way so much. I mean, maybe on a one-off it could be because you could have like really great thoughts and intentions and then completely blow it. But that's blowing it. That's not being a Russia. Like, so I'm not sure that they really so much are likely to live in the same heart. Okay. The act of bowing low before the Ribbono Shalom is symbolic of utter subordination. We bow when we feel ourselves to be in close proximity to him, right? That's the word atah, baruch atah. When we learned about the word atah and we talked about that being face-to-face, that Hashem is immediately present at every moment, at that level of closeness, there can be nothing other than he. Our approach to him signifies our willingness to lay down our lives for him, to nullify our being. But the Nachash was unwilling to undergo the self-abnegation. He who does not bow down while reciting Modim marks himself as a human Nachash. Right? And all of this, in the end, becomes exemplified in the posture of the snake, who is now told he has to lie on his belly, and the posture of a person who is identified among the animals, even though there are other upright animals, but essentially we say that the the posture of a person where his head is above the rest of him is somehow exemplifying his humanity. Okay, so this is now a Rav Moshe Eisman's paraphrase of a passage from Maharal. Okay, this is the Maharal on Bavakama. The reason that it is specifically the spine that turns into a Nachash is that it is just the spine that most clearly expresses the affinity between the man and the Nachash. The spine allows us to stand upright, and it is just that stance that proclaims kingship. Originally, the Nachash too stood upright, since he, just like man, was royalty. Then came a test. Man passed, the Nachash failed. Now, I, this is like, we're not going to go there. What is that? Man passed, we passed, did we not pass the test? Okay, interesting. To be deserving of royalty, one must be able to subordinate himself to a greater king because a king, the most dangerous king, is the one who doesn't feel he has to report to anybody. A real, like a human king mm-hmm. needs to at least feel that there's a god over him, or you're in big trouble. Okay? In this case, the Rabbono Shalom himself, Adam, the first Baal Tshuva, did just that and retained his standing of kingship. The Nachash, by rebelling against God's command, showed himself unfit for the mantle, he was punished by losing his upright stance and having to spend eternity slithering along the ground. Okay, so because it's late, what I want to do is just remember that in these brachos, the purpose of brachos, of every bracha, and particularly the set of brachos, is to connect everything in our physical experience and environment to its source in the spiritual world. And to use our experience of our physical environment 
as triggers to remind us of the spiritual world so that when I open my eyes and I think, what day is it? Is it day? Is it time to get up? And I say, wow, Baruch Ato Hashem, Elokeinu Melech Olam, Asher Nosam Lasech Vivino, Lavchin Ben Yom Uvein Laila. I can tell the difference. And I'm grateful and I realize that that has not come from the world of nature. That comes from God infusing the ability to distinguish between good and bad and night and day into my mind and into the world, right? And I use that that's from top down. I recognize the top down. And I also use that as a trigger and a catalyst for bottom up. Therefore, if God gave me the ability to tell the difference between day and night and good and bad, therefore, I will use that for him as a way to serve him. He gave it to me, and I dedicate it to him. Right. So it's this two-way street with brachos always. It's recognizing it's from Hashem and dedicating it to Hashem. When we talk about zokev kefufim, Hashem raises up, straightens up those who are bent over. We haven't quite finished the topic yet. Hashem raises up those who are bent over. And here, the bending over is my fallibility. It's expressed in the mistakes I make and the fact that I acknowledge them. When Adam did tshuva, the Maharal says, he's able to stay a king. When I can bow down before Hashem and say, I'm grateful to you, and I acknowledge that you are God, not me. You are the rock of my life, not me. You're the one who saves me, not me. I mess up. <laughs> but I acknowledge that you're right. When I can do that, I can stand up in the way we talked about with Kafufi, where it's bent at the top to God, but it's straight at the bottom to the world. Okay? So this is step one, piece one of starting to bring these ideas, which like, you know, went from down here to like up there and like bringing them back down now, hanging on to them, turning them into something we can hold on to and use. So one is when we bow. And when we say the words zokef kifufim, we understand that there is a power and a gift, a power of being able to admit I'm wrong, and a gift of an opportunity to admit I'm wrong. That Hashem gives us the chesed of time to do tshuva. That's a gift. That's a gift. And that is, we have seen again and again in these brachos, this series of brachos, that this is the gift. The different tools that Hashem has given us to serve him, why are these chosen for the brachos? Why vision and not, the, and not some other sense? Why standing straight and not, I don't know, some other movement, right? Why these? Because these specifically are the gifts Hashem has given us that we can dedicate back to him. That's the gift of tshuva, the gift of being able to come close to Hashem, that maybe we're not always so close to Him, and He allows us to draw near. So the brachos are our foundation of our karbonos, karbon as that which allows one to draw near, karov, that's a karbon, okay? The brachos are the foundation that we build on to be able to draw close to Hashem, and that is why these brachos are chosen is because they are specifically these tools that we use to come close to him. We're going to stop here.
Emirates Hashem. We will finish off next week. Um, tying together, at, both on a practical level and also conceptually, the different pieces we brought here. We have, you know, the, there's this sort of the snake part, and there's the part about the falling down and getting up, and there's the part about feeling emotionally oppressed, right? The aspect we said was okay kifufim, which is particular to not not per se the physical burden itself, but the feeling of being burdened. Okay, so we're going to try and pull all those strands together and move on. Yeah. <laughs>